Before we dive into this week's episode, a quick heads up to listeners who are dealing with burnout, who are on the edge of burnout, or who are just coming into the awareness that you are working in a way that is not sustainable. So the good news is I created a course for you, and it's called Reset, and I'm running a special discount on registration through January 15th. If you haven't already heard me talk about Reset before, it is a self-guided four-week course that will help you completely reinvent the way you work. It will show you how to let go of the soul-sucking productivity mindset of grind culture and move into what I call a heart-centered approach to productivity, an approach where you celebrate your progress every day, where you attune your work rhythms to the natural rhythms of your body, and where you make time for the creative work that feeds you. It might sound too good to be true, but numerous past students of the course have called Reset literally life-changing, my favorite online course of all time, and one of the best investments I've made in myself in a long time. To usher in the new year, I'm offering a special deep discount on the course through January 15th. You can save $60 off the regular price of registration. If you'd like to get that discount code and or you would like to learn more about Reset, you can visit jkg.co slash courses. Just pop your email in the pink sign up box that you'll see on the page there and you will be off to the races. Once again, that's jkg.co slash courses for more information on the Reset discount offer. Hello, hello, I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast where we explore provocative ideas about creativity, consciousness, and healing. Today, I'm going to do something that I haven't done on the show before, which is to revisit a Hurry Slowly interview from the archives. I've been doing the podcast for six years now, and in that time, I have had the great honor of interviewing quite a few remarkable people. So moving forward, I'm going to periodically dip into the archives to resurface some of the interviews that I have found to be particularly meaningful. And the one that immediately came to mind and that I'm sharing today is my 2019 interview with the writer and activist Adrian Marie Brown following the publication of her book, Pleasure Activism. As I listened back to the interview here in 2023, I had a couple of thoughts. The first of which was, wow, what an honor and a gift that this person was willing to share her time and energy with me and with us. I really felt everything that Adrienne shared was such a blessing. And the second thought was noticing how deeply her work and this conversation has shaped my own thinking, particularly in thinking about the question of enoughness, which is one of the central themes of this interview. Adrienne shares Stacey Hines' incredibly powerful question, are you satisfiable? And we explore the idea of how to really get in touch with what it means to have enough, which is, I think, an excellent question to reflect on as we move into the new year. And contemplate how to show up for ourselves and for others in new and different ways. We also talk about attention liberation. We talk about idea lineages. We talk about why we must transform ourselves to transform the world. And we also touch into how to be in right relationship to the production of miracles, as opposed to your standard issue, boring old capitalistic productivity. 
This is one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had here on Hurry Slowly, and I truly hope you enjoy it. All right, let's dive in. Let's start with the basics. How do you define pleasure? I feel like it's maybe a bit broader than what might immediately jump to mind for most people. Yeah, um, I think of pleasure as satisfaction, contentment, joy, um, the feelings we have of having our needs met and um, really being able to enjoy that. So it is a little different. I think when I say pleasure activism to people, a lot of folks I can see like sex dungeon kind of come into their eyes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it's been interesting to navigate that with folks like, uh, oh, that's not what I mean at all. You know, um, unless that's your thing, like unless that is the place from which you derive the most pleasure, right? So uh, for me, it really is, I, I kind of go to the root of it. Like, what is it that makes you feel satisfied and content? And can you remember that everyone has access to that? Everyone has the right to feel that way. Right. And a lot of people sort of immediately go to indulgence, perhaps. You asked people throughout the book what their daily practices of pleasure are. What were some of your favorite answers that people gave? Yeah, I have really enjoyed hearing people talk about time with children and a ton of people who receive like, oh, it feels deeply satisfying to spend time with kids. Like I'm fully present. They're fully present. They remember how to be fully present. And they remember that they can co-create the world, co-create the future, co-create what whatever we're doing. And f- people find that very satisfying. And there's a lot of straight up daily practices of orgasm a day um, or masturbation every day or making intimate time with a lover every day. Um, and then writing, creating, Um, For people who, I mean, a ton of the people that are in my community are people who would self-identify as artists and who don't necessarily get to do that as their full-time, you know, life. Um, And so then it's like, okay, well, what do I get to practice every day that reminds my system that I'm a creative being? And those practices always, you know, both inspire me and give me pleasure. It gives me pleasure to think about folks indulging in their art in that way. Yeah, well, inspired by the book, I started making a list of the activities that bring me the most pleasure. And I found that they were all really tactile or immediate Mm -hmm. or 3D, um, very much about being present in the moment and in my body. And it it sounds like that was true for those people as well. Is that is that true for you, too? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that when I'm not able to slow down and feel myself, it becomes very hard to have a a life that experiences pleasure at all, right? And so for me, I can get going very quickly, um, moving through things, and I can end up in a cycle where I'm barreling through my life and then numbing myself with food or weed or television or something like that. And at that point, it's very hard for me to actually connect with pleasure. But when I'm able to slow down have enough space, have enough breath, have room to integrate um, all the experiences that are happening. Because I think, you know, one of the things that was important to me was that pleasure activism is not about hedonism, right? Like it's not Mm. the absence of pain or grief or loss or any of the hard parts of life. It's something that is, it includes that wholeness, right? Um, There's a way that you know, we all suffer. Suffering is a part of the human experience. And then how do we 
from that knowing of suffering, how do we treasure even more those moments of pleasure and connection and joy? And for me, it is a very tactile thing to be slowed down into the place of, I mean, the deliciousness of reading a real book, like holding a book in my hand, feeling the weight Mm. of it, smelling it, turning the pages. I love to read an actual physical book um, or the delight of sitting at my mother's table and having the breakfast that she's made us since we were kids. And, you know, kind of savoring, not just the taste of everything, but the process of it. You know, she's always like, I don't have enough of this. There's a little too much of that. And it's just, there's a rhythm of it that, you know, my dad like breaks up the bacon and the eggs and adds it to the grits. And like, there's just like processes that I'm like, oh, this is, this is not forever. Like I won't always, always get to experience this. I want to treasure this, these moments, this time that we get to spend around the table there's a pleasure, there's a preciousness um, to those kind of tactile live experiences that I get to have with family or with friends, loved ones. That's really beautiful. Um, I want to talk more about the aspect of speed that you were just touching on. But before we do, you know, we're talking about embodiment, and that is a really strong theme throughout the book. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about somatics and this idea of coming back into the body as an essential part of transformation. Yeah. I am so grateful that I got exposed to somatics. Um, my comrade Malkia Cyril is the person who kind of put me in touch with it. I was like, this might be a good idea for you. And that idea that the body is full of all this data, all this information, um, and that we spend a lot of time numbing it and quieting it and ignoring it and overriding it and instead dropping down into it, feeling our way into it, feeling our way through it, finding a way to say, oh no, actually I can feel and I deserve to feel and it feels good to feel. And even when it doesn't feel good, that, that data that comes from that feeling can help guide me towards the next move or the next step that I need to make. Um, so I think about that feeling from within. And the core practice of somatics um, is a centering practice, right? So it's a way of saying like at any moment, at any time, I can choose to drop myself in to my body, to notice my sensations, to center myself around what I care about, and to do that at an embodied level. Like, in the system of my body, there are things that I love and that I long for. And I want to be organizing my life so that I'm moving towards those things rather than not organizing my life at all and just kind of reacting to whatever comes my way throughout the day or rather than organizing my life around obligation or organizing my life around base survival. And, you know, I think a lot of somatics to me is also a way that we can access privilege and injustice and notice like, oh, I have too much or I have more than is due to me. I am ignoring, you know, somatics is a way to reawaken the part of ourselves that can can be numb to those who have less or those who don't have homes or those who don't have food or those who don't have education. Like we can train ourselves to not feel that. And then it becomes very easy to be complicit in a system that keeps those systems going. To me, somatics is a way we reawaken ourselves into the right relationship we're meant to have with each other and the planet. When you talk about feeling more or how feeling more deeply into your body and being more present in your body allows you to get to this place of feeling 
a full body yes or a full body no in certain situations. I'm wondering if you can describe what that feels like or what that looks like. In me, I feel a certain tingling across the top of my shoulders. Um, And that's almost always the first sign of it. That's like, oh, this is right. This is where I'm supposed to be. And this is the work I'm meant to be doing. Like we're on the right path. Um, And it's been that way since I was very young. And I feel that as the start of it, I will often feel heat in my belly, heat in my lower belly, like a warmth and almost an expansion. And in the past year or two, I've started to feel this. um, It's almost like the soles of my feet kind of open up and energy starts pouring down into the ground, down into the earth. And that's often when it's like there's a massive energy moving through the room and I'm responsible for helping it stay rooted helping it stay grounded in something bigger than just me or just us in this moment. And I have talked to people about it. I know that other people also feel that, but there's something around like, it's a yes that requires my participation. And I'm interested in that, right? Like I think of that, you know, a lot of people might experience that in the realm of sex, that it's like, you know, if you just lay there and don't do anything, it's, it's, unlikely that sex is going to be super satisfying. (laughs) But if it's a yes, and you start to participate, move towards what you want, say yes, give instruction, give guidance, then all of a sudden you find yourself in a state of ecstasy that required your participation that could not exist without you actively moving towards it. That's the kind of yes I'm most interested in. and, And that's the kind of yes that I want to cultivate with my work. And I talk about that and pleasure activism and in other places, like how do we start to bring an orgasmic yes to all the aspects of our lives? Well, I'm curious to hear you talk about that a little bit more in the work context and the activism context, because I think that people can, you know, are more likely to be able to relate to that in terms of physical pleasure, um, in terms of sex, to understand what that kind of full body yes means. Um, but the sensations that you're describing and having them in a public context, in a work context, I think might be sort of like a little bit foreign to some people or feel a little bit more inaccessible. So I'm curious, kind of like, how did you get from you know, maybe being less embodied to being that level of embodied and like, how does that kind of play out in those more work public facing contexts? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it took a lot of small things. Um, it took meditation practice. It took yoga practice. Um, I feel grateful for, um, I did a sabbatical almost a decade ago now and during that sabbatical, I ended up at this spot called Kalani that was on the big island in Hawaii. And there was a meditation uh, meditation and yoga teacher there who was in her mid-70s. And she was like, I picked up my yoga practice in my late 30s. And it was super powerful. <clears throat> like, she was just like, this is, you have to do something. You have to do something that awakens your body every day. That's really important part of being a human being. And I found that really useful. Um, and what I found was the more I was dropping into my body, the better I was as a facilitator. So it wasn't just for my own personal joy or satisfaction, but it was important for people to understand, like, I am a human being. And what I know about this room is in part informed by what I can feel happening in the room. 
And what I can feel happening in the room is hap- I can feel it because I'm dropping into myself. Um, and now I feel like when I'm in a space and I've started to be more and more transparent about what I can feel in the room, which then I find invites other people to be more and more transparent about what they can feel because a lot of people are feeling, but most of us are taught to keep quiet about it. Like not to tell anyone, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I'm having a feeling and, um, and then we find ourselves stretching and bending and contorting in order to try to find another way to, uh, share whatever information it is that we're, we're, we're feeling, right? So then we try to, um, and I find the contortions to be hilarious. Um, like sometimes I can feel someone, you know, being like, I don't think we should do this and then trying to make a case for it. And I'm like, you don't actually have a case for it, but you have a feeling for it. And I would trust that feeling if you would just say that, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But I've had to learn that because I, I've had to touch into my own feeling. And, you know, I will also say that it doesn't work in every single space. Um, and it definitely doesn't work if I come in and try to drop people into feeling without, um, with, or, or have a conversation from feeling without first doing some stuff that helps people drop into it. So I will often begin an event or even a speaking engagement with taking a moment to have people just breathe and drop in and actually feel themselves in that moment and feel that they're here on purpose, um, that I didn't take them captive, um, that they chose to come and be a part of whatever this is. Cause people also forget that, you know, we end up in organizations and coalitions and meetings and even, you know, family experiences and relationships and friendships that we, we act as if we are victims of that. We somehow accidentally ended up in it and we can't get out and then we're just suffering through it. And that's no way to live a life. So a lot of times I I will ask people, drop in, remember that you have agency here and that you chose to be here and that you can choose to not be here if it's not working for you at any point. And you can choose how to be here. Do you want to be here, um, you know, kind of in a cloud of white lies and politeness and like not really saying anything and not having a real connection? (laughs) Or do you want to be here like in real time, which might be messier? Um, saying how you're actually feeling and letting us co-create this experience together. And more and more, I find that people are willing to step with me into that second space or step with each other into that second space. And that the humans I'm most interested in constructing the future with are those who feel comfortable in that second space. I love that. And you're right. Real time is very messy. And as you were talking, I was it was making me think about this kind of idea of big data, right? It has sort of overtaken the technology world and this like obsession with big data and sort of people looking always externally for more things to help them make decisions about what they as an individual or they as an organization or a collective should do. Um, but you're kind of making me think about this idea of like somatics, right? How much data is locked in the body and often trapped in the body and that that's yes. where the real big data lives that we're not tapping into. Exactly. Exactly. I deeply believe that. I deeply believe that, that like our bodies, and that's what I've been trained, right? And, and it's like that training, um, this is one of the things I talk to people a lot about is like, you have to go on your own somatic journey. I often recommend to people to find a somatic body worker or find a somatic practitioner or register for a somatics course, or 
there's a practice you can listen to um, the interview on the Healing Justice podcast. There's an interview with Sumitra where she runs through the centering practice. And I often refer people to that just because I'm like, you can start at least the practice of dropping in and feeling yourself. And you can determine for yourself. Like if you actually drop in and center and do that practice for 20 days or a few months or a year, and you are like, I don't feel anything, then you know that may not be the path for you. But I've never had anyone actually take the centering practice on and actually practice it for real and not come back and say that it was helpful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I am a big fan of the Healing Justice podcast. At one point in the book, you write, quote, it started with pleasure, not with dieting or exercise. I had to love what is before I could understand what transformations were wanted, needed. Yeah. So there's there's this element of embodiment and presence and even really self-love that precedes understanding how to move forward or how to make positive transformation. Yeah, I feel like... This was the great trick. <laughs> and I feel like I'm still untricking myself or trying to find my way out of the the um, distortions of diet culture and kind of a patriarchal worldview of what my body should look like. Um, and I, yeah, I feel like um, for a long time, I was like, if I can get my body to be different, then I can begin to love it. And from that love, then I can let others love it. And it was just like the domino was, first, I have to fix my broken self. Something's really wrong with me. And it shows. And anyone who looks at me can tell, like, I'm bad at something in life, you know. And I had to kind of flip that on its head um, in order to begin the process or the practices of actually loving myself. And What's looked like in my lifetime has been doing practices where I actually have to accept what is. Um, and it, it's very tangible, like it's looking in a mirror and really spending time observing my body, looking in a mirror and really spending time observing my face and observing my motions. Like, what do I look like? What do I laugh like? You know, um, looking at my butt, looking at my thighs, looking at the cellulite, really leaning into it all. And then I've done self-pornography, self-photography, like really starting to see my, myself as like, this is the body that I have. This is what exists right now. And what would it look like to see it whole and to not think of it as broken? And then all of a sudden I find a little delight in myself, right? And a lot of this happened actually in bathhouses, um, like going to hammams and bathhouses. And you know, I lived in New York um, during like a formative period of my 20s. And I would go to the Russian and Turkish baths. Mm -hmm. And I was able to see all the other bodies as beautiful. But I wasn't allowing myself that. And it kind of clicked, right? It kind of flipped. And like, all of a sudden, I was like, I'm, I'm just like one of these bodies. I'm another human body. And can I find the beauty there? And it has been such a liberation to begin to find the beauty in my body and to allow others to see beauty in my body without having to see perfection, right? Like being able to actually see a real body. And I, then I get really curious about the idea that, oh, there's a lot of people in this world who have these imperfect bodies. Actually, the majority of human beings have these bodies that would never be supermodel bodies or anything else. So who benefits from having the majority of people in the world feel like their bodies are undesirable 
and wrong and broken and need fixing. And it's like, oh, capitalism, <laughs> right? Like so many systems rely on me not loving my body. And that makes me feel like uh, it's a very radical act then to to love my body and really to put it in people's faces. You know, like last night we did an event, my sister and I did an event and I, um, you know, wore leggings, like just straight up leggings. And where it's like, here's everything. Here's my butt, here's my thighs, like here's the whole thing. And I'm not covering it with a, <laughs> you know, with a skirt or with a dress or a long shirt, or, you know, there's nothing that's going to save you from this. In <laughs> fact, I'm wearing the shortest shirt above it that I can. So you can really get the whole view, right. And contend with it. And I feel very inspired by singers like Lizzo, mm. you know, folks who are stepping out and being like, contend with this. This is what a, another kind of body looks like. And I'm also desirable. There's another point in the book where you write, as women, we need to examine the ways in which our world can be truly different, all of the aspects of our lives and work. And it made me think of this value of productivity and having a productive day that so many of us seem to have absorbed from this capitalistic society we live in. Yeah. But I think that the model of productivity that so many of us carry around is a very masculine one. It's obsessed with speed, as you were kind of talking about earlier, with speed and efficiency and forward progress at all costs. Never mind the fact that the most efficient approach is usually not the most pleasurable approach, or that efficiency is often contrary to creativity or anything that's truly generative. And I'm kind of curious about your take on this, this idea of a maybe more feminine attitude towards how we think about being productive. Yeah. I mean, it's such an interesting thing because, you know, the entire human species is produced from the bodies of those who have been seen as women for most of human history. And it's really interesting. Like I've been in a very exciting place of starting to deconstruct or understand gender differently, where I'm like, well, what is masculine and feminine? What belongs to women? What belongs to men? What is beyond the binary? And then how do we start to see production um, as it actually happens, which is a lot of very complex parts have to come together in the right time in order for production to happen, like to create life, to create miracles, to create new generations. And I think that so, so much of what we currently get pushed to do is guided by people who are not willing, are not able to be in right relationship with the production of miracles. Right. <laughs> so mm. I'm like, Oh, it, it, you know, you can't, um, <clears throat> I, I work as a doula sometimes. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest lessons of it is like, you cannot rush a baby out of a body, right? Like the child comes when the child is ready to come and you, you, it's not going to come because you decide like, oh, now you can, you know, and I think this is like a very, um, capitalist approach to, the birthing process is now a lot of people will do scheduled C-sections, right? Mm -hmm. And for no reason, like not because they need it for a health reason or anything else, but just because they can, <laughs> right? And it's so fascinating to me because it's like, oh, what, why, when did we lose track or when did we lose touch with the natural process of timing, right? That there's a gestation in, in effect, there's something happening in the body that the body wants to take care of and attend to. 
I think in the workplace, it's been really interesting to see how that kind of thinking, like, oh, everything should be scheduled and controlled and managed, mm-hmm. moves us further and further away from the natural and organic rhythms at which creativity and miracle actually want to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting curious and interested about spaces that are starting to adapt to what does it mean to acknowledge that we actually have organic human beings Um in these places, and that there are processes that have an organic pace to them. And I don't know necessarily that that's got to be a feminine thing. Um, I do feel like it is more of a receptive and humble way of approaching life. Like there's something about being in right relationship to change that acknowledges that not all change is meant to be driven. Some of it is meant to be experienced (laughs) in other ways. And that perhaps the changes that we're in now, right, which are climate apocalypse changes, perhaps those changes are only happening because we've been trying to drive production. And instead, we need to figure out how do we slow down and dance with it, you know, dance with life, dance with what's happening in the world. And I'm really getting curious about that. We have to take a short break now, but stay with me. Afterwards, Adrian and I talk about why you don't have to produce anything to deserve satisfaction. You write about building communities of care in the book and shifting from a model of individual transactions for self-care to collective transformation. And this idea of making sure that our gifts are available to those who are growing and changing our communities. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, I really get interested in, you know, like as someone who's been, I'm a writer, you know, and I... I have done a lot of other kinds of work, but writing is a thing I continue to return to. And so I think about that like, oh, how do I know that I'm giving my community something that's actually worthwhile um, and not just competing with other people to be making the amount of money that someone said I should be making by this time in my life? <laughs> um, and it's really, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Writers are generally not that uh, financially viable. It's not like the path that you go on if you're trying to get wealthy. And I feel okay with that, you know, but I think a lot about how, what I've gotten to experience in the past few years is that I created something. I I let something come through me that people find value in. And I'm learning like, how can I trust that my community has found this valuable and will continue to find this valuable. And so I don't need to operate from a place of deep scarcity, but instead lean into being a part of a community that is, is going to care for me because I have cared for it. Um, and because I'll continue to care for it. And I think about that with healers. I think about that with artists, like there's people whose contributions to society are so important. They're so crucial. And I, um, I'm like, how do we actually make sure we're valuing all those contributions? I think about this with aging as well, right? Like I've gotten to watch a few people get very old. And last night we were, um, we were in a conversation with Toshi Reagan, um, who is a singer and a songwriter and a producer. She's, she's creating the parable of the sower um, as an opera Um, But she was talking about, it's so exciting. (laughs) It's like one of the most exciting things that ever happened. (laughs) I had no idea about that. It's very, very cool. And um, 
It's going to be in Boston in March of 2020. They'll be doing four or five shows of it. But, um, you know, we were, they were asked the question, like, what do we do? How do we really combat capitalism? And she was like, you know, we have to steal things and we have to really think about how, uh, how do we, how as older people do we continuously keep redistributing and redistributing and redistributing and giving what we have rather than hoarding what we have? How do we keep on thinking of ourselves as giving it away? And I loved that thinking and it made me think, you know, how do we make that, how do we flip that switch in our heads of like the more that we are generous and the more that we are giving, the more resources are able to flow freely throughout our communities to the people who need them when they need them, rather than being hoarded by people who may or may not need them. You know, the people who have multiple homes that they only use once a year, um, people who are hoarding resources when there's people who are homeless, right? Um, how do we move away from that hoarding mentality into one that is a generous mentality? And I think that movement spaces should be at the forefront of that kind of behavior of thinking about, and I think we are, you know, I see a lot of groups today, you know, we're doing this interview on what is called giving Tuesday. And I see so many different groups that I work with and care about and love really distributing funds amongst ourselves. You know, we're asking for money that we need and also giving. And I'm trying to give to five different groups today. And I'm asking for people to give to my work today, you know, and it's like, mm. none of us are wealthy, you know, or most of us are not wealthy, but we are still finding a way to generate abundance amongst ourselves. And I think that's how it's always really been done. Um, and I think that's how we, what we will return to is having enough because we share what we have rather than having enough because we accumulate what's not ours. Well, and so maybe going a little deeper into that, you talk about how people who have privilege are in many ways the primary beneficiaries of pleasure, often white people, men, cisgender folks. Pleasure naturally flows to these groups. How do you think people who fall into that category can start to pay it forward and share all of the blessings that they've received? I mean, I think there's a lot of different options. Um, one of my favorite folks who I'm watching do this now is the actor Matt McGorry. Um, one of the ways he does this is by uplifting the people who are shaping his ideas. And I feel like that's one of the things that whiteness often um, doesn't see and doesn't uplift is like the lineage of ideas. Like, where did something come from? You know, who taught it to you? And how do you... How do you pay back that person who was teaching something to you? Um, in a lot of Eastern cultures, there's a, a process of dana or paying things back. Like, you know, if you have received a gift, like I have a, a martial arts practice that was passed along for me from an Aikido master and the, the community that I learn in, they make payments back to that Aikido master's family so that you know, that, that generosity that, that was offered to us gets to flow in both directions and that his family doesn't have to be in want, even if he's passed on because what he gave was such a gift. And I think about that in, for privileged people, as I'm like, you receive a lot of wisdom, a lot of guidance, a lot of gifts from people, um, without necessarily thinking about how do I support this? And I'll say in a very tangible way, this is one of the things that shows up for me, you know, as I've been moving ideas into the world, that when I have an event, 
it is most most likely by like 80 or 90% most likely to be white people who will come up to me and ask for additional questions and additional advice and want to like pick my brain mm-hmm. um, in, in, after, in the event, right? After the event. Mm-hmm. So it happens almost every time I do any kind of training or workshop or anything that there will be a multiracial space and other people will come up and a lot of times people of color will say, thank you. Thanks for what you offer. Thanks for what you did. And they might tell me like, here's what I've gone and done with it, you know? Um, which I love hearing and it's, it's always inspiring and exciting to me. And the majority of times when someone comes and says, Hey, I just want to ask you, like, could you explain how you do this? Or could you tell me more about how to do this? It's almost always a white person or someone who's like, I really need more support. Like I need some emotional support around something that you said or something like that. And it's fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm really in a scholarship around like, huh, what do I do? Right. How do I start to expose that pattern and invite people to be in right relationship with that pattern, to notice it in themselves. And so then I, I always look around like, well, who's already living the solution? And Matt is one of those people where, you know, he gets an idea or he reads a book and he will uplift that book, uplift the author, uplift the pages that he got the ideas from, reference all of it in a way that makes other people then go purchase the book, right? Mm-hmm. And for a writer, that's the number one thing you want. People have to ultimately buy some of these books in order for you to keep going, right? Um, And then there's, you know, healers, other people, there's other ways that this happens, other teachers. But I try to do that in my work now that I have more exposure, thus more privilege, is to really make sure people understand, like, if you love the idea that I'm putting forward, you need to understand that it comes from Audre Lorde, you know, and you need to understand that Audre Lorde's work continues. There's an Audre Lorde project. There's places where you can continue to support that work moving forward. If you love some of the ideas that I'm coming up with, you need to know that they come from Octavia Butler. And you need to understand that there's a lineage of black women and black feminists that I'm drawing from and that there's a modern way to support those people. Those people. Um, and then I think really in, in the most tangible way, so much of this is about the idea of enough you know, like that's one of the intersections between emergent strategy and pleasure activ- activism for me is are you in touch with what it is to have enough? And can you identify what is enough in your life and then redistribute everything else? And I find, you know, a responsible redistribution is also really important. Um, one of the things that people of, of privilege love to do is redistribute in ways that still maintain their power. So give to things from a position of being on the board or being in a position where they get to shape the decision-making, even if they're not on the ground and they don't know the ins and outs of that community. And I get really inspired when I see people who are willing to give to things in a true sense that says, just because I was born into wealth doesn't mean I know more about life than anyone else. It just means I was born into wealth. And in some ways, it means I know less about life than anyone else because I haven't had to survive that much. Um, So how can I redistribute my resources to those who most need them and those who have the best sense of survival, like what to do, how to make the, the dollar go the furthest, right? And I think about this in my own life. How do I give without grasping? How do I give without mm. trying to control? How do I give in ways that really redistribute power and not just redistribute funds in a temporary sense. So let me ask you a sort of personal question on that note. Um, I recently moved out of the city to upstate New York, and 
I have a little cabin on my property that needs to be fixed up. And once I've got it in good shape, I would love to share it with folks by creating a residency of some kind and, you know, invite people who are doing social justice work, activism, caregiving work, you know, type of folks who often don't get a break um, in their work to use it. And I'm a queer, white, cisgender woman who has a lot of privilege. Um, is there anything within that context that, um, you know, you, any counsel you would give me or also like pitfalls to avoid um, related to kind of what you were just talking about in terms of trying to keep oneself in this sort of power position? Mm. Yeah, I think that's powerful. I mean, I think one thing that could be powerful for that would be to get it fixed up and then identify a collective of people who were responsible for it and who really had control over what happened in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not just you. I think one of those things, one of those moves could be identifying a community that you're like, this is the community that I deeply care about. Maybe it's, um, you know, healers, you know, black healers in Brooklyn or, you know, (laughs) different, you know, like folks who are doing a particular kind of work that you find inspiring and, um, and create something that's in that community's name or in that community's effort, you know? So it's like, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about the wind call program where, you know, I received a fellowship from them years ago and it was such a blessing to me when it came. And basically there's a commitment that for people who are doing social justice, that they get to rest and they get to go someplace and be fed and have quiet and rest. And there's nothing else required of them. There's no product that's needed on the other end of it. And, and they get a coach in the process of it. Right. And it's a beautiful project. It's a beautiful process. And part of what makes the beauty of it is that those of us who have been through it get to be part of shaping who else gets to come through it. And we get to be part of who coaches those who come out on the other side, because basically it's a community, you know, we're supporting each other. And I've gotten to nominate many people into that process. And each time it's super um, rewarding to me to see someone get to go and get to rest. And it changes your relationship. Like even if there's not a lot of time and space to, you know, like for me, I coached for a few years, but I don't have a lot of time and space to do it now. But just knowing that there's people who have been able to rest because I was able to do something as simple as send an email that said their name. Um, there's something really rewarding about that. Like I think reducing the barriers and reducing the application processes. Um, Mm -hmm. I also received a fellowship uh, last year, I think it was maybe the year before from the Auburn, um, the Auburn Institute that was just uh, the Auburn seminary. And it was a spiritual resilience fellowship. And it's one of my favorite things that's ever happened to me because it was really like, I just got a phone call and someone was like, you're doing work that we believe in. And so we want to offer you some resources and some respite. Boom. Right. And it didn't require me to do any additional work. I think that's, you know, for me, you didn't have to apply. Exactly. I think that's the biggest problem with so many of the things is like, if I have to go out of my way, if I have to push for it, if I have to fill out another application for it, there's something in that that says what I can see isn't enough. Like Mm -hmm. the work that I can see that you're doing, that's not enough for me. I need to know something else and I deserve to know something else. And the older I get, the less I feel willing to engage in that game. You know, I'm like, Mm. I'm working as hard as I can in this lifetime. And, you know, not everyone can see everyone, right? So 
I think it's really important. You know, I love that system where people ask, you know, like, who can I see? And then I love being able to ask other people, who can you see that's doing great work? And I love when I come across people who are doing great work that were not on my radar. And I think that's, you know, one of the great blessings of, of having a big abundant movement, um, is that there's always people who need that kind of support, that kind of respite. And, um, but yeah, I think the biggest, the biggest first move is like how to decentralize it. Thank you for that. That's really insightful. I want to come back to this. You were talking about this idea of, uh, what is enough, um, and in the book, you write, pleasure activism is learning what it means to be satisfiable, to generate from within and from between us an abundance from which we can all have enough. And that theme, I, I like I like the word satisfiable because somehow it, it feels a little easier to hone in on than enough. And that theme of being satisfiable comes up throughout the book. Could you speak just a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, this is one of those ideas. Um, this happens to me sometimes, maybe it happens to you sometimes where you hear an idea and it kind of makes you stand still, you know, like what? (laughs) So that happened for me with this idea, um, where I, my teacher, Stacey Haynes in the generative somatics lineage mentioned this, like, are you satisfiable? in a class. And it's, I couldn't, I literally don't remember anything else that got said that day. Like I was just sitting there so shocked inside, like, I don't think I'm satisfiable. And I don't think I ever learned to be satisfiable. Like I think my whole orientation has been satisfaction is out ahead of me and I have to keep changing and working and like busting my ass and trying to figure out how to get to it. So then I started to become obsessed with this idea of like, well, what would it feel like to be satisfiable? Yeah. And then learning that it's very different for every person, you know? And so for me, I was like, I want to get a felt sense of it. Um, What does it mean to be satisfiable? And now I start to bring it up to people because when I ask them, a lot of times uh, you can see almost like a turning inward, like the eye contact will still be there, but the presence goes inward. And I'll ask people like, when was the last time you were satisfied? Can you imagine being satisfied? What are the things that satisfy you in a given day? How do you know that you have done enough in a given day? Do you understand that you don't have to produce anything to deserve satisfaction? Um, and these questions, you know, they touched into people in a, in a major way. Um, and they touch into me still, you know, I still find myself noticing that and then celebrating when I do have those moments of satisfaction, I try to make a big deal out of it for myself of like, this is it right now. I am content right now. I feel satisfied and, and, or, you know, if I'm in a situation where I'm trying to negotiate, like what is it I actually need in order to feel satisfied that I can articulate more clearly those needs that it's not, um, that I'm not keeping in a mystery inside myself, which is what I did for years is I would have inside myself, um, you know, this longing, this need that wasn't being met that I expected the other person to somehow figure out, um, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. read my mind into it, you know, and, I now have gotten more and more comfortable with being like, not that, this, this is what I want. This is how I want to feel. And this is what I need from you. This is the kind of social interaction I need from you. 
or this is the kind of space I need, right? Like I noticed this as a, as a, now it's like the other side of things where I'm like, for a long time, I was like, oh, I want people to hear what I have to say. And now I'm like, oh, people are hearing what I have to say. Now I need boundaries (laughs) (laughs) and trying to say, here's the space that I need in order to return to you in a whole way and not just give some small portion of you, some portion of myself to you. And I think that feels very, very important to me that we're all so often showing up and giving each other the bare minimum of presence and then surprised that we can't feel each other, that we don't actually feel the depth of connection that we're longing for. And that's something I feel like now I'm starting to feel almost obsessive about is I want to feel the depth of connection with my own life. I want to feel like I'm alert and aware and I'm present. And if I can't give good presence, that I can take responsibility for that. So, and I've been doing that a lot lately. It's like um, saying to someone, I'm not actually able to be present right now, or I need to rest right now, or I, you know, naming mm-hmm. a need that would allow me to show up better. Um, Cause I really do want to be present. And I've noticed that, you know, there's times where with my family, I'll be here, um, you know, I just spent time with them this past couple of weeks and, you know, I'll be like in a moment where I'm like, Oh, I'm not showing up well. <laughs> I want to show up well, but I'm not doing it right now. And, um, and then trying to notice in myself and be able to take accountability. You know, the other day I walked in and I was feeling short about something. And then I took that out of my mother and I was short with her and I was able to notice very quickly, like, Oh, that wasn't about my mom. Like that wasn't fair to take it out on her. And I was able to go in and apologize and take responsibility, you know, um, that to me feels like the place I want to be in my life, in all the things is not perfection, but being able to be really aware and then be really accountable for the right relationship between myself and other people. Like here's how I can get to that right relationship. Well, and I think that flows into the final question that I wanted to ask you, which is um, one of your pleasure principles is what you pay attention to grows. And you also talk about attention liberation in the book, a phrase that I really love. Could you go a little bit deeper into these ideas about attention? Yeah. Um, you know, I think attention is actually the primary resource that we have and we're made to think it's not. (laughs) So I get really interested in where is my attention going? Is that where I want it to be? Is that on purpose? And, um, I feel like, um, I'm, you know, I, I've tried to think recently, like, when did I first think this? You know, like, when did I first feel aware of this? Because it, it feels like a gift from facilitating people. Um, and it's a big one that like facilitation is all about how, where are people's presence? Mm. Where, where is the presence of the human beings that are in front of you? And do you feel like you understand what they're, what they care about and what they need? Can you meet those needs? Um, And I think about this now for myself often is like, where is my attention actually going? Is that where I want it to go? And am I being accountable to myself? Not just to myself in like that moment, but accountable to myself on a, on the highest level, you know? 
um, to what it is I'm meant to do here on this planet. And there's some stuff that I'm meant to do. You know, I think for each person, there's some stuff that we're meant to do. And I get really, um, tender around it actually when, you know, I see someone for the first time recognizing like you have power, you have a power that is fully your own and there's something you're here to do with it and don't let anyone take it from you. Um, it's your responsibility. You know, I think a lot about my responsibility. Um, I was lucky to have a really good teacher in Grace Lee Box. Um, she talked about that transform yourself to transform the world. And I feel like I've been in that practice, like trying to be in that practice um, for the past few years. And it means I have to, anytime I see a problem out in the world that I want to fix, I have to turn and figure out how do I bring my attention to where that, that problem lives and is rooted in me? And how do I bring my attention to what I can do to help resolve that problem or that, that issue inside myself? rather than just pointing fingers and hoping that other people figure it out somehow. Just as it did with Adrian when she first heard it, the question, are you satisfiable, stopped me in my tracks when I read it in her book. It's a long, deep question to contemplate. And at the moment, I'm not entirely sure of my answer. But I suspect I've been operating for many, many years in a way that would suggest that I am not. I've reached so many goals that I've set for myself, but rarely does the outcome I dreamed of feel as satisfying as I had imagined it would. More often, it's just a feeling of vague emptiness and then on to the next thing. But what would it take to feel satisfied? I suppose it comes back to what all of these hard, contemplative questions come back to, which is just being present and grounded in the process of your life narrowing down the lens of awareness to the little baby steps and beauties of the day so that you can move through even the smallest moments like a mantra. This is enough. This is enough. This is enough. Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and for talking me down off cliffs when I get a little bit too much in my head. Thanks also to Devin Craig Johnson for our soothing theme song. If this episode sparks some new ideas for you, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Every rating helps expand the audience, which helps us keep making the show. Thanks again for listening, and remember to take your time. (laughs) 